if you will, scariest or most terrifying words in all of Scripture. In the penultimate section of Jesus' great sermon on the kingdom of heaven, we come to one of the most fear-inducing, gut-wrenching, hope-sapping passages of Holy Scripture. Jesus speaks here about people who claim to know him, who claim to serve him, who claim to follow him, and yet to whom he will one day say these terrifying words, away from me, I never knew you. That should scare us. That should cause us to, at least in some sense, initially be fearful. And so, as Jesus himself says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. A few years ago, um, when the uh, Canadian clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson, you may have heard of him, he rose to international prominence around the time his book, 12 Rules for Life, was published. I remember watching an interview with him. I can't remember which interview it was, but I just remember him saying in that Kermit the Frog-like voice that he has to this interviewer, I choose my words very, very carefully. That was his quote. That's that's, That's what he said. And this was something that he enjoined upon his hearers as well, that people in general should be more careful in the words that they choose. This is a good thing to do, and I agree with him. That is sound advice. Well, if Jordan Peterson chooses his words very, very carefully, how much more so the Logos, the divine word of God incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ. As we look at this section of Jesus' word from the mount, The first thing that we need to do, the first thing that all of us here need to do, is to recognize this as a warning word. I would pray that no sermon here at Calvary Freiburg would ever be sort of understood on that level of an interesting talk about the Word of God or about the Christian faith, but that even though we want to intellectually engage with the text, that each sermon would in some sense speak to our hearts, to the the seat of our lives. And all the more so this evening. As we look at this section of Jesus' word from the mount, the first thing we all of us need to do, starting with me here up the front, is to recognize this as a warning word and to take Jesus' warning and his word seriously. Jesus never simply went yada, yada, yada when he was teaching, throwing out words and sentences to fill out a sermon. Nor did he get carried away in the emotion of the moment seeing all those people in front of him eating the loaves and the fishes and just get carried away and announce some doctrine that was not consistent with reality and with God, his Father, and then later have to backpedal, oh, maybe I went a bit too far there. No. Jesus considered and chose his words very, very carefully. And his words are pure truth. He is the truth. It's interesting, if you look back at some of the church fathers, when they quote Jesus, they say this, the truth says... And then they give a quote from the Gospels. Jesus is the truth. We need to take these words seriously. And in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, compiled of his sermons on the same, British minister Martin Lloyd-Jones, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, says of this section of the text, he says this, that that we read this evening, he says this, quote, These surely are in many ways the most solemn and solemnizing words ever uttered in this world, not only by any man, but even by the Son of God himself, and therefore demand our most earnest attention. How often, I wonder, have we considered them or heard a sermon on them? Must we not all plead guilty to the fact that, though we claim to believe the whole of Scripture, 
In practice, we frequently deny much of it by ignoring it, simply because it does not make us feel happy or because it disturbs us. But if we really believe that this is the Word of God, we must consider it. And the only way in which we can consider these words truly is to do so in the light of the fact that a day is coming when all earthly things shall pass away. This is a word addressed to men and women who are conscious of the fact that they will have to stand before God in final judgment." End quote. Lloyd-Jones went on to preach three sermons on these three verses, in effect pleading with his congregation at Westminster Chapel in London to take this warning word of our Lord Jesus seriously and earnestly. So that's the first thing we need to do tonight. We need to do likewise. We need to do the same. Now, in one sense, you could say, we do say, all Scripture is God-breathed, says the Apostle Paul. All of it is truth and useful, and all of it, all of it rightly demands our attention and our serious engagement. It's a serious text, and we should seriously engage with it. So, in a sense, telling you this evening and telling myself this evening to take this word of our Lord Jesus seriously is a little bit superfluous. It goes without saying. I shouldn't really have to tell us that. So the question would be, what is it about this text that would need us to make doubly sure that we stop and consider it seriously? And I think the answer to that question is that in this text, Jesus is giving us a wake-up call. The sermon, you'll remember, is directed to his disciples, to those who would follow him, to those who would enter in at the narrow gate, to those who would see themselves as poor in spirit, hungry for righteousness. This is directed at His disciples, and Jesus is giving us as His disciples a wake-up call. He's warned us, as we've seen these last few weeks here at Church at Five, about the danger and the reality of false prophets, false teachers, false leaders in the church, those who teach and preach and say things which are contrary to what Jesus Christ has taught. But now He's going one step further. He's bringing it down from the level of leadership, down and he's opening our eyes to the reality of false disciples, the terrible danger of self-deception and self-delusion. That is, of thinking that we are disciples, thinking we are followers of Jesus, thinking we are Christians, when in reality we're not. Look with me now at our text, for this is what we see. Jesus is speaking here of the scene on the day of judgment. That's what he means when he says, on that day. And there is a large group here in front of him on the day of judgment. Many will say to him, he says on that day, Lord, Lord. So they come and they speak to him, Lord, Lord. They address him as we should rightly address Jesus Christ, as Lord. There's a sense here of calling him Lord in the sense of he's the divine son of God. He's the true king of the world. He's their master. And they say to Jesus, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name? They're sort of asking this question, expecting, an answer, expecting Jesus to say, hey, wait a minute, yes, you did. So you see from the way that Jesus frames this conversation, there's already a sense of surprise and concern amongst this group. They're, they're, they're standing before Jesus and they're sort of thinking, hang on, why haven't we been welcomed as belonging to Jesus and His kingdom? Why weren't we welcomed as friends, brothers and sisters? 
Why haven't we already been ushered in to the new heavens and the new earth? And so they're kind of, they're saying to Jesus, there seems to be some mistake here, there seems to be some problem here. Haven't we done all these things in your name? Aren't you our Lord? And then Jesus says these words in verse 23, I don't know you. I've never known you. Get away from here. You have no place here. Again, we need to be thinking of the horror, the sort of slowly rising horror as the weight of Jesus' words dawns on this group of people and they realize the implication. There's no going into the kingdom of heaven. There's no going into the new heavens and new earth. There's no fellowship with Jesus. This is a terrifying situation. But how do we know that Jesus is speaking here of the danger of self-delusion and self-deception? Well, as I said just a moment ago, the whole scene, isn't it, is constructed around the surprise of this group of many who stand there saying, Lord, Lord. This is not what they expected. This is not what they expected. They expected to be welcomed by Jesus with open arms as his friends. So there's a sense that they've deceived themselves. They're they're not receiving what they expected to receive. There's some level of delusion here. Secondly, they address Jesus correctly. They say, Lord, Lord, and that is how we should speak to Jesus. The point isn't that people who double up and say, Lord, Lord, are somehow going to miss out on the kingdom of heaven, so don't overdo it, just say, Lord, once. That's not the point. They actually say the right thing. Everyone who is saved will say to Jesus, Lord. But not everybody who says Lord will be saved. That's Jesus' point. It's necessary to say Lord to Jesus, but it's not sufficient. The point here, though, is that these people believe and confess the right things. Their confession from their lips is the right confession. They properly and correctly address Jesus as Lord. And they act in His name. Three times this phrase, Jesus repeats, and again, I said at the beginning, Jesus chooses his words very, very carefully. He chooses to have this group of people in the teaching that he's given, repeat the phrase, in my, in your name, three times. So they call Jesus Lord, and they act in his name. And that brings us to the third thing that shows us that this is about self-delusion and self-deception. Jesus doesn't contradict their claims to what they'd done. It's not like they were barefaced liars, pirates, smugglers, whatever, criminals, who knew right from the get-go that they'd done nothing and they're just trying to sort of sneak in on technicality, just tell a story, maybe it'll work. It's not like that at all. They're not barefaced liars claiming to have done things they didn't do. Jesus never questions their works. He doesn't say, hang on, no, you really didn't do that. What do you mean you drove out demons? You didn't drive out any demons. He doesn't question them at all. Their confession of faith is right. They act in Jesus' name and they expect to enter in. So these are not liars or heretics. They're false disciples. They are self-deluded and self-deceived. They think they're Christians, but they're not. As Lenski, the Lutheran commentator, says, he says this, quote, they claim a connection with Jesus which doesn't exist except in their imagination, end quote. So the implication is clear. In thinking that they're disciples of Jesus, they've relied on false evidences of salvation. 
They've relied on the fact that they've confessed the right doctrine or they've confessed the right relationship to Jesus. They've called him Lord. And they've relied on doing good things, casting out demons, performing miracles, prophesying in Jesus' name. That's what they've relied on. But let's be absolutely clear. We have to be careful in how we speak about these passages to make sure that, we, that we're getting things right. So let's be clear. A right confession of Jesus as Lord and the evidence or fruit of that confession in our lives, good works, both of these things are good things. It is right and good to confess Jesus as Lord, and it is right to produce fruit in keeping with that confession. In fact, if you do not confess Christ as Lord, you cannot be saved. And if having professed faith in Christ, your life shows no evidence of fruit, no evidence of that confession being true, then your confession is empty and worthless. That's what we've been looking at the last few weeks. You know a tree by its fruit. But this is the point for this evening. Jesus shows us here that while these things, confession and fruit, are necessary, they're not enough. What is missing is knowing Jesus and being known by Him. Knowing Jesus and being known by Him. Indeed, so much for thinking that we could be saved by our works without truly knowing Jesus and being known by Him, doing these things is equivalent to evil and lawlessness and missing the will of the Father. That's what Jesus says here, isn't he? He said, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he says to them in verse 23, away from me, I don't know you, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity, or you who do evil. So what Jesus is in effect saying, if you don't know me, and we'll look at that in a moment, if, you're not, if, you, if, if, if Jesus doesn't know you, if Jesus doesn't know you, if you're not known by Jesus, then your confession and your works are not doing the will of the Father. You're missing the will of the Father. And in fact, these works are equivalent to iniquity or lawlessness. Hard word. Let's bring it in here to us at CCF, at Calvary Freiburg. Again, as I said at the beginning, we need to take Jesus' warning word seriously. So it's important, this is not an abstract talk about certain disciples or Christians in other churches, at other times, in other places. This is Jesus' word for all of us here tonight, this evening. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, and he says, he enjoins this upon the Corinthian church as something that they should be doing regularly, examine yourselves, test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith, Test yourselves. Don't you realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. We are to examine ourselves. And we are to examine ourselves by letting such warning words as this from Jesus Christ speak to us, get right through to us. We really look at our lives in light of what Jesus said. So where do we need to be warned about self-delusion? What are some of the sources of self-deception that exist and remember here, Jesus is talking to orthodox, that is, right-believing, right-confessing disciples. This is not 
somehow dabbling in idolatry or, you know, doctrines of demons, that the New Testament warns us against things like that, but that's not what Jesus is getting at here. He's talking about people who are in the religious community, in the church, part of the visible fellowship of disciples, and who think they're disciples, but they're actually self-deceived. So, let me give you five sources, briefly, um, and let me challenge you to examine yourself as you hear these things. Often, these, often this can be subtle, and, and so just be, be thinking about, is this me? I know I was uh, talking to Brandon this week because um, he and I both read all three of Lloyd-Jones' sermons, and in fact, the first two of these points are roughly taken from Lloyd-Jones. And I was talking to Brandon, and we both felt, we both felt challenged by what Lloyd-Jones wrote, his words of warning against self-delusion and self-deception. It's easy to fall into these things. So, the number one would be a source of self-deception. Trusting, I've just titled it this way, to sort of put a few things together, trusting in association or habit. Trusting in association or habit. These are the people, quoting Lord Jones here, quote, who have been brought up in a Christian home and atmosphere, who've always heard these things, and in a sense have always accepted them, and have always believed and said the right thing. In a sense, you think you're a Christian because you grew up a Christian, because your family is Christian. It's sort of your ingrained habit to come to church, to be part of a fellowship. So, in, in a sense, you're trusting in this association that you have. Oh, my family's a, I'm from a Christian family. I grew up in the church. Or you're trusting in a habit. This is what I've always done. I've always heard these things. I've never questioned these things. This is, you're trusting in that association or habit. Number two, trusting in feelings. There are people, and these would be people who are naturally fervent, emotional, zealous kind of people. People who are prone, maybe a bit like me, to sentimentality or excitement, or enthusiasm, who do get carried away in the moment, in the atmosphere. These are people who just sense a real sense. They're all heat and no light. These are people who think they're Christians because they, they really feel it, and they love the feeling and the emotion and being part of this movement. And they're trusting, in a sense, in that feeling that they've experienced, or that they continue to experience when they go to their meetings. Number three, number three I've entitled this, loving liturgy or music. This is related to the previous group. The danger here is that you love the worship service, you love the liturgy, you love the beauty of the music and the, and the readings and the prayers and the, the blessings, the sense of stability and the, the rootedness they give, the, the sense of being part of an institution that's gone on for many hundreds of years or the sense of beauty and transcendence you get from a, from a, a worship service, whether that's a, a very liturgical, uh, high church style of service, or whether it's that more charismatic Pentecostal service, where there you, you know, long sections of kind of free worship and the music swells, and you love the, the rightness, or the feeling of it, the, the, the beauty of it, and you feel at home in it. That would be loving liturgy or music, where we're really in each of these things, what, what it's really coming down to is that this thing, whether it's the, you know, the association, the idea of that's part of my identity, being a Christian, whether it's the feelings that you enjoy when you're in the, the church, or whether it's the, the liturgy and the form and the, the institution, that, that this is, in fact, the center, the focus. 
Number four would be your love, would be loving theology, or doctrine, or apologetics. Again, the danger is that you love, that your focus is on theology, on its high points, its speculations, its distinctions, its nuance. We all laugh about the Middle Ages and the scholastics debating about how many angels could fit on the head of a pin, but that's the kind of thing we're talking about. These, these high arguments and nuanced arguments about arcane points of theology, or you love framing and crafting a doctrine correctly, or you love apologetics, you love the fight, the to and fro of arguing and debating to defend the faith. That's where your focus is. Number five, loving the social side of the faith, the social side of the faith. This can be as broad as loving the fellowship here at church, at Church at Five, the feeling of belonging every Sunday evening to a social group, of feeling like I can come here, I can meet people, I can hang out week by week, I can feel part of an awesome community. Or right through to the prioritizing of the ethical and social and mercy ministries of the church, like working at a soup kitchen or investing in programs for refugee kids or fostering interfaith dialogue, where, where these things become the goal and your satisfaction in themselves. And uh, Lloyd-Jones spends an entire sermon going through this, this kind of example. I could say more about each of these, I could add more to the list, but I think and I hope you get the picture. that The implication, in case you didn't, of Jesus' teaching is that in each of these cases we can have people who speak and act as if they were Christians, even think they're Christians, but they're not. And the reason they're not is because that one thing is missing. In each of these five sources of self-deception, perhaps, these things in question are not bad in and of themselves. Trust, like coming from a Christian family, making it a habit to be a part of a church is a good thing. We are human beings, we are made up not only of rationality, also of emotion. And Christianity speaks to our emotions, it speaks to our hearts. There is such a thing as a spiritual, emotional experience. Our God is a God of order and of beauty. He loves beautiful music and beautiful liturgy, thought that goes into how a worship service fits together. The words that we use to pray should be beautiful, should lead people to focus on God. God is a God of theology, that is, knowledge of God. And it's right that we should answer, have answers to those who ask us for the reason for our hope in us and that we should defend our faith. And it's good that we come together and we have a true fellowship and community here every week. And we should be putting our faith into action and helping those who are disadvantaged and in, and in need. All of these things are not in and of themselves bad. They're all good. They all have their proper place. But what Jesus is sort of saying here in this text is, without the one thing that matters, these are sources of dangerous self-delusion. Because these things become the focus instead of the one thing that does matter, the one thing that must be our focus. What is the one thing that matters, therefore? Let's remind ourselves. The one thing that matters, and we take this from verse 23, is truly knowing Jesus 
and being known by him. That's the key to this text. Right there in verse 23, if you're looking at it in your Bible, Jesus says to this group, when they claim, they claim their confession, they claim their works, they claim their association to Jesus, and what does he say? I never knew you. I don't know you. That's what they're missing. To these false disciples, Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. That doesn't mean that he didn't know of them, that he had no information about them. Of course he did. Of course Jesus knew of them. He knew of their works before they even mentioned them. He knew who they are. It doesn't mean he doesn't know of them, but it means he doesn't know them. In other words, he has no relationship, no friendship, no personal connection with them. Therefore, the mark of a true disciple, as we move towards the end of this Sermon on the Mount, this is the penultimate section, the last but one, and Jesus is making clear here, yes, right confession is crucial, yes, fruit is crucial, but even those two things are not enough if you're missing this one thing. The mark of a true disciple is knowing Jesus and being known by Him. And it's when we know Jesus and are known by Him that when we then confess Him as Lord and do good works in His name, that's when we're doing the will of Jesus' Father who is in heaven. In other words, the essential source the source of power, of, of strength, of life, for true confession and true fruit is a person, Jesus Christ. Listen to how the Apostle John puts it in 1 John and chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. 1 John 5, verse 11 and 12. He writes this, and this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Where's the life? It's in the Son. John continues, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is essential. And if there's one thing you remember tonight from this sermon, let it not be scary passages of Scripture or terrifying horror, however important it might be to be confronted with that from time to time, but remember this, take this with you. Christianity, salvation, eternal life, entering into the kingdom, all of these are about a person, Jesus Christ, and having a personal relationship. And I, when I say personal relationship, I don't mean best buddies with Jesus, but I mean a personal connection to a person. It's not if you have the right confession or the right fruit or the right works or the right miracles, then you have life. John makes it clear, it's if you have the Son, if you have this person, you have life. And if you have the Son flowing from that, you will have a true confession. You will, your life will be full of the fruit of good works because the Son is the source. The Son is the source. Listen to two statements that Jesus makes, again, as He addresses His disciples on the evening of Maundy Thursday before He went out in order to be betrayed and arrested. He makes these statements in John chapter 14. The first statement He makes is in John 14, verse 6 and 7. 
verse 6 and 7. Jesus says this, he says, I, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Just hear that statement again. Where is the way? Where's the truth? Where's the life? Again, not to downplay the importance of confession and of fruit. We've been learning about those these last weeks. They are important, but they ultimately have to flow from the source of life, the source of truth. And that source is a person. It's Jesus Christ himself. And so he says, no one comes to the Father, no one comes into the kingdom, no one comes into eternal life except through me as a person. Interesting what he then says in verse 7, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. Jesus is inviting his disciples to really know him and therefore know the Father, know God. Second statement Jesus makes in this chapter a few verses later, in verse 23 and verse 24 of John 14. Jesus replies to his disciples and he says this, quote, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Let's take that verse and apply it now to what we just have read this evening in Matthew chapter 7. What's it about? Jesus is is referencing that not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but who? Those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven, those who obey the will of the Father. And Jesus is giving us a clue here to understanding who's it going to be who obeys the will of his Father in heaven. He's already said in his previous statement, if you really know me, then you'll know my Father as well. He's, he's, by saying my Father, he's uniting himself with his Father. He's saying whoever knows me also knows my Father. My will is the same as the Father's will. Who's going to obey? Sorry, who, who's going to obey the will of Jesus Christ? Those who love him. Those who love him. Those who those whose focus is on loving the person, Jesus Christ. Not whose focus is on the right confession or whose focus is on producing the right fruit. Those are important, but they flow from loving Jesus. Not the person whose focus is on, hey, I just grew up in the church, I've always been a part of this, my family is Christian, it's just who I am. Not the person who's holding on to emotional, spiritual experiences, and that's their main, that's really what it's all about when they come together. I was talking to somebody just yesterday, and they said they were, they were talking to someone else. There you go, six degrees of separation. And this person was saying that they'd grown up in a, in a church, or they'd been part of a church, where they realized when they came to another church after a while, that this whole church, even though people had been singing about Jesus, was simply focused on healing. On, on divine healing of sickness and illness, but there was actually no interest in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about here. Not that person. Nor the person who, who just loves coming into a, a, whether it be a, you know, a modern Pentecostal church or an, an ancient sandstone cathedral and just loves the weight of the ages and the beauty of the art and the music and the liturgy and the prayers. And, but that's their real focus. No, the focus must be Jesus Christ, knowing Him, loving Him. That's the one thing that matters. Christianity, this is what Jesus is saying here with these statements in verse, in chapter 14 of John's Gospel. Christianity, salvation, 
Entering into the kingdom of heaven, being a true disciple, is all about a personal relationship and connection with a person, with Jesus Christ himself. It's about knowing him, it's about loving him, and therefore obeying his teaching and doing the will of the Father. So the question that we need to ask ourselves this evening, that the question that is ultimately the examination that we all need to take this evening is, do we know Jesus and do we love Jesus? Ask yourself now, do I know, do I really know the person Jesus Christ and do I love Jesus Christ? In other words, to go back to the reference in 1 John 5, do you have the Son? Do you have the Son? And therefore, do you have eternal life. A few uh, weeks ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Poland and uh, Western Ukraine. And I traveled with a small team from this church, and we met up with an, a team from another church, and it was, we spent a week there. It was an intense week dealing with challenging and difficult situations. We'd gone there with supplies to help people, and our desire was to pass those supplies on to those in need, and then be available to help those who had fled the horror of war in, you know, engaging them and um, sharing with them the love of Christ and maybe finding accommodation where they could be safe. And I want to briefly relate two things that happened that week. On the second morning, we were a small team, as I say, and we were praying at our hotel before we set out for the day, and there I am, one of the pastors in this little mission trip, if you will, or this little team, this little Einsatz, and I prayed a prayer that wasn't wrong. I didn't pray anything heretical, so you know, Brennan. <laughs> didn't pray anything wrong in that sense, but my prayer, I realized... Very, few, very short moments after I'd said sort of amen, was basically functional. My whole prayer, I was in the moment like, let's get out, let's get on the road. How can we, my prayer was basically functional. How can we be the most efficient and useful in meeting needs and helping people today? And one of the others on the team prayed right after me, and the prayer this person prayed was Jesus-focused. I don't know how else to describe it. It was just Jesus-focused. It was directed to Jesus as a person. It was expressing love for Jesus, not in a really, you know, soppy, romantic way, not at all, but in, a, in, a, in, a, in an intimate, like, friendship, trusting, relationship kind of way. Expressing love for Jesus, dependence upon Him, a desire for guidance from Jesus. It just struck me that this prayer that was prayed by another person in the team has obviously come from a place where this person has a relationship, a connection with the person, Jesus Christ, and a focus on that person. And they prayed this prayer right after the pastor, I just prayed this functional prayer, like, let's get out there and do it. It just hit me like a slap in the face. I was like, whoa, I couldn't, I couldn't pray that way right now. Because I don't have that relationship right now. That's how I felt. I wasn't expecting that. And two days later, we were driving uh, somewhere, did a lot of driving that week. And in the meantime, we'd met our, our two, or our group uh, from, from this church and another church, we'd met a person, a former Christian leader, let's hope they don't listen to this podcast, who had been very difficult to relate to, very difficult to relate to. This is a former pastor. Basically, this person was in some ways a one-way street no ability to really listen to anyone else, 
but an enormous capacity to talk about themselves and steamroll everyone else in a conversation. I'm sure you've always, you've, you've all run into a person like this. And, you know, God had blessed this person with a loud voice on top of that. So there we go. And uh, I was, we were driving and I was talking to another member of our team about, you know, running into and meeting and being involved with this difficult person. And uh, just, just reflecting on the fact that this person had been a pastor and sort of how can you be a pastor when you can't actually listen to anybody and you just talk all over the top of them and just completely dominate them. Seems bizarre. And any, anyway, I said something along the lines of, I, 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 look, I approached it this way. I said, hey, the way that person's behaving, it's not right. It's not, it's not ethical. It's not fair. I didn't use the word ethical. That would have been a bit bizarre. But I said, it's not right. It's not a good way to behave. And I judged the person according to an ethical standard, an ethical standard of the New Testament. Again, my judgment wasn't wrong. It wasn't wrong. But then I asked my companion what she thought and how she saw it. And she said this to me. She said, without skipping a beat, that she found it extremely difficult to see that person as a Christian leader or pastor because when she looks at Jesus, she doesn't see him act like that or talk about himself in that way at all. And for the second time in that week, I just felt punched in the chest. My initial reaction to this person was to think, how is their behavior? Here's the ethical standard of the New Testament. It doesn't add up. And this companion of mine, her immediate response was to look at him and then think, that's not how Jesus is. What does that show? She knows Jesus. She has a focus on Jesus. She spends time with Jesus. She knows what Jesus is like. And so her, her, her without skipping a beat, look at Jesus. Doesn't add up. Doesn't fit with how Jesus is. So I asked myself, is this, I asked myself, is my focus as a busy pastor on doing the works of the kingdom and on measuring things by the ethical standards of the New Testament? That's what I mean. We, all of us, starting right here, we have to take Jesus' warning seriously. And I resolved in that moment when this companion of mine said this to me, um, I resolved to refocus. I thought, I need, this is a wake-up call. I need to place my focus on Jesus Christ. That as naturally as my brother prayed to Jesus, and I could sense that he was praying from a, a friendship and a, and, a, and a relationship, and as naturally as my sister in, in Christ, these are not my blood brother or sister, as naturally as my sister in Christ immediately thought of Jesus and his character, I might do so too. That was the examination that I received just a few weeks ago. And I offered that to you as maybe a help for how you might want to respond to the word this evening. So, let's draw things to a close. Let me invite the worship team to join us. Sorry, that was a bit of a hard invitation, guys. Sorry, come up. Come up. We want to take the words of our Lord Jesus seriously. We want to take the words of our Lord Jesus seriously. This matters. And I was thinking about the end of this sermon. How do you end a sermon on a text like this? On the one hand, I don't want to let us off the hook too lightly. I don't want to easily pass over this word of warning and sort of say, hey, but you know, it's, it'll all be right in the end. It's all okay. Don't worry too much. I don't want to do that. I don't think that's what Jesus wants. Certainly Jesus doesn't do that. He just leaves this hanging in his sermon. 
But on the other hand, I don't want to leave us unnecessarily fearful and afraid. So let me finish with this. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Let me encourage you, come forward for prayer if you need to be refreshed, if you need to refocus on Jesus Christ. There's no need to be ashamed. We need each other. We need to help each other follow Christ. We need to constantly help each other. Hey, you've been distracted. You're looking over here. Look back to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But be encouraged. We heard this at the pre-service meeting this evening, if you were here, part of the team. Jesus came to us and He desires to have fellowship with us. He desires to know us. He desires to have fellowship with you and to know you. Jesus desires to know you. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And He desires to dwell with His Father in our hearts by His Holy Spirit. And as I was prepping this week, the Lord put this on my heart as the the word to end this sermon with. So here it is. When we think about standing before the Lord at the end of days, we often remember the phrase that Jesus says to those who've done well. He says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. And my invitation to us would be, don't just make it your desire when you stand one day before our Lord to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Desire those words, but don't make that just your desire. Make Jesus and seeing Jesus your desire. Make longing to meet Jesus face to face your desire. Make longing to see your friend and your companion, your saviour, your desire. As John writes in 1 John 3 verse 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Let that be your desire, to see Jesus as He is. Amen. Let me invite you guys to stand and let's sing together.